talk about the universality of the teaching having to do with, uh, I was thinking yesterday about what did I want to talk about, and uh, I thought about the kind of uh, assignments that you had in grade school when you came back in September, and the first essay was always, what did I do on my summer vacation? So uh, since I was teaching in the last three weeks, and I went to different venues, um, and I had a wonderful time. I'm happy to tell you, I was... Uh, Huh? Where did you teach? Where did you ah, I taught. Uh, I went to New York and I, uh, I met with a group of rabbis and taught them. Then I went up to uh, Kripalu Yoga Institute in Lenox, Massachusetts, and I taught there for four days. Then I went back to New York for two days. Then I went to Washington D.C. and I taught in the Smithsonian. Institute, wow. Yeah. Wow. Lisa. I also thought, wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, in the, you know, you always know where the palladium is, and the Smithsonian is, uh, you know, kind of a palladium itself. Okay. So I was there, and I was excited. I think palladium studies is really funny, fun at the, at the Smithsonian. And I taught at um, uh, the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, Tara Brox. Uh, place, which was really great fun. It's in a wonderful church, big, beautiful church, lots of people come. Then I went back to New York and I taught in two days, three days, I taught the Scarsdale Women's Club uh, the, at the Jewish Community Center on, <coughs> uh, on there's another group that Scar in Scarsdale. I taught uh, the uh, monthly lunch and learn luncheon at the college I attended on Morningside Heights. I, um, you know, I was thrilled about that. I, you know, I, that, that I, I loved all of them, you know. Uh, but to get in the elevator of the very school at which I was a student wow. from 1952 to 1956, and it says lunch and learn with Sylvia Bush in the class of 56, on the fourth floor, I thought, oh, that's me, you know? <laughs> and I could feel myself suddenly how I was in 1952. 1952 is 56 years ago. So, wow, you know, that was great. And I taught um, at the JCC Jewish Community Center on Amsterdam, Amsterdam Avenue that night. And I taught at... Is this all with your book? Or is this all on your book tour? It was all on my book tour. But, you know, this was the interesting thing, Barbara, and this is what I wanted to really talk about. I taught in, I don't know, 10 different places, 15. I didn't teach every single day. I went from one place to another. And I ended up teaching at New York Insight. And I never gave the same talk twice and because I, I don't do that. And... Uh, it doesn't work for me because I, I have to have thought of it that day in order to really feel excited about it. So each thing has to be a new thing. This is the thing that I, this is today's new thing, which I wrote last night, is I have to think about where am I going next and who are those people, and then how to teach it becomes clear to me. And it's the same book and it's the same Dharma. And so what I'm really going to talk about is the universality of Dharma. Because there is, the, there is only one lesson, that the mind in contention with its experience suffers, and that it's possible to develop and cultivate the kind of mind that stays alert and aware of its experience 
meets it with a, uh, a cordial interest, which would be another word for mindfulness, meets it with a cordial interest. The Rumi poem about every morning I open my door and there is, do I have that Rumi poem with me? Somebody gave it to me and I carried it around. Who knows it by heart? Uh, I usually have it with me, but I don't have it. Every day, what do you know, Susan? Which part of it? It's a, it's a guest house, right? This house is a guest, this body is a guest house. Every day I open my door and who's there? Irritation, despair, sadness, whatever it is. You invite it in, that's what's there. You don't fight with it. And then it leaves after a while. So I think to myself, um, every day I think, that, but that's true. And it's true for everybody, whether they're in the Scarsdale Women's Club or my alumni or the Jewish Community Center. Uh, but I wanted to talk appropriately for each group and they were all different. In the last one, which I did just on Sunday afternoon before I came home on Monday, I, I built my talk around Tamara Engel, who was one of the founders of uh, New York Insight because Tamara died in December and she was my very close friend and you probably have heard lots of the Tamara stories here. And uh, I really wanted to take those Tamara stories and put them through the talk so that Tamara told me this and Tamara told me that. So I could make the various points about dealing with difficulty because Tamara had three years to get used to being sick and then being sicker and then being told that she wouldn't get better and then coming to the end of her life. And she did it with more clarity and more poise um, than anyone I've ever seen do it. Um, mostly because I think she had done a great deal, not only of mindfulness practice, but of mudita practice, which is keeping one's heart really in an appreciative mood, no matter what really appreciating other people. She had a great practice of appreciating. And really, I think in the end, it's appreciating that, it's appreciating being alive that keeps us getting up the next day and uh, keeps us using the last moment. She said at one point, I had a really wonderful life, I loved it. And I don't want to forget that before I die. I want to remember it until the last minute. So I have to keep appreciating the very last thing she said to me, which I told them as well, is uh, when, you know, on the day before she died, I, the, the nurse in the hospital had to be holding the phone next to her ear so that I could talk to her and she could talk back. And, uh, and she really, really was uncomfortable at that point and she really wanted out. And she said, this is so hard, Sylvia. And I said, I know, but not too long. And she said, it's really hard. She said, you know, but Oh, wait a minute, she said, the nurses are just fixing my blankets here. The nurses have been so great. They took such wonderful care of my body. We should really think of something to do for them afterwards, something to give to them. And I never talked to her again. That was the last thing I said to each other. And I'm sorry, I did all those couples, three days of simple. If I want, I want to end my life appreciating, really being able, because it just means turning around and my just. <laughs> That's a huge just. It means turning around your mind in a moment of extremists. Really, you're dying. 
and say, this is a great life, you know, that these people took wonderful care of me. How to be able to teach in different places, different things. I didn't think so much about uh, teaching Buddhism. I thought about teaching wisdom practices because I think that's actually what people want to hear. And when I was in the uh, New York Insight, I certainly told about the Buddha sitting on the night of his enlightenment and fending off all of the attacks of afflictive emotions. And uh, uh, so I, I told Buddha stories about, you know, legends really, but that his great uh, benevolence formed an invisible shield around him and all the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, all the bad things that happened to him turned into flowers and fell on the floor around him because it's such a beautiful image. But uh, I didn't tell that image in the Jewish community center because uh, with, a different, um, with a different audience, you want to talk about what's the, what are the stories and the symbols and the images that uh, relate to them in the Jewish community center. I, uh, I studied the Torah portion. I, you know, in a synagogue, every week of the year, they read another piece of Torah so that they come through the whole first five books of the Hebrew Bible from Genesis to Deuteronomy in the course of a year, and then they start again. And it's not divided by chapters, so you don't read chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. It stops and starts quite capriciously in the middle and the end of chapters. Um, so you have to, but if you were there the week before, which people are supposed to be, actually, it's like uh, hearing a serialized radio drama. You know, as we heard yesterday, Moses' sister took, was stricken with, um, and now he prays on her behalf. He prays on her behalf. But so then you carry on. It's like a long story. So it was very, it was a very good week to teach at it because in last week's, last week's Torah portion was chapter thirty, was in chapter thirty-three, I think, of uh, Exodus, and it's a story where Moses says to God, "Tell me your name." And uh, the response is not a name, but the response is. Um, um, I am God, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, patient, full of kindness, and truth, forgiving. There are actually 13 attributes 13. of God, but I haven't gotten all 13. But it's a, quite a lovely passage. And it was very perfect to talk about because you could talk about these are actually the divine qualities of the human heart that are described. <coughs> there you go. Somebody's got them on them. Who has it on? Right on you. Peace, graciousness, blessing, generosity, patience, equanimity, passion, forgiveness, humility, tolerance, devotion, compassion, and love, affection. We get that from Chachmat. That's very nice. That's very nice. You know how to sing it? 
Um, the same satin pants, but I don't have the tag that, that holds all of those. No. I know most of it, but, uh, <coughs> but everybody in that particular audience could relate to that. And I say, really, this is, this is one of the things that is fundamental to the practice of mindfulness, to making clarity in the mind. When the, when the mind sees clearly what's true, Actually, the word uh, emet in that, in that, Ralph um, Chesed, the emet, is usually translated as faithfulness, but I, I really translated it as uh, being able to see what is true, really seeing truth in a very clear way. And what I was saying is that my sense of what's true, my experiences of what's true, is that we are as I am, and I think the human species is by its very nature, endowed with the capacity when it's not confused to be um, gracious, compassionate, forgiving, uh, kind, supportive, patient. We do all those things with our friends, with our... Imagine, imagine if we did weren't had the ability to be patient. We raise children with patience, forgiving, and I talked about the ways in which the mind gets confused. And I actually told a story in the book that uh, has to do with, with mindfulness spells. Do you remember it or should I tell you the story? Mindful Jewish mindfulness spells, I'll tell you the story. Um, I had told a story, I was explaining this to uh, a group that I was teaching, I was training in, in uh, mindfulness class. And I told the story about a mindfulness bell that gets rung in the Thich Nhat Hanh community. Thich Nhat Hanh community, going, they, you know, they, they do have meditations where they all sit quietly for some period of time. But mostly it's a work community on, at, on, in Plum Village or at Parallax Press where people were publishing Thich Nhat Hanh's books. And there's always someone who has a bell that they can ring. It's a mindfulness bell. And they ring it at unpredictable moments during the day. So people are all busy and talking and working and carrying on or whatever, but the bell rings ding and it's like the children's game of freeze. You stop wherever you are. But you don't have to stop with your hands in the air. You can put them down. But you stop talking. Even you're in mid-sentence, you stop talking. Stop talking and you stand. What's it? Whatever you're doing. And two minutes later or so, someone rings the bell again, ding. And then it's the same game. You continue on where you were. But you're not exactly where you were, because in those two minutes, you have two minutes to think to yourself, wait a minute, as my mind settled down, where am I? What's going on with me? I'll take a breath. I'll take another breath. Think things over. Is this the direction that I want to be going? I was thinking and watching the political debates. Would be like, I guess it wouldn't be a debate if we had this, but what if one person could say their thing? They go, ding, and then everybody waits for 30 seconds, and then they say their thing. And they say, ding, and wait for 30 seconds, and everybody could compose themselves, and they could think about what they feel like saying, and then what would be wise to say. And we could hear, actually, some kind of, but I think, actually, that part of, part of what people want to test is how fast is everybody on their feet. 
and that gives you that, what, I, I don't know whether it's a fair or an unfair advantage to be able to think over before you do something. But I, you know. Anyway, I told that story of the Thich Nhat Hanh, mindfulness zone, and someone said, oh, I'll tell you a story out of my community, and the person was my friend Jeff. Jeff is a, um, uh, an accountant, and um, uh, a, uh, he has a big accounting firm, and he's also a mediator for business disputes. And he also lives in uh, New Jersey in, uh, uh, in, a, in an area, sort of a part of New Jersey, where many people live a quite traditionally orthodox Jewish lifestyle. And, and he's part of that community. So he's very trusted as a mediator in businesses that are somehow connected to the tradition. So he said, they told the story of being asked to negotiate a, a, a um, dispute between two companies, both of whom uh, dealt with uh, a product that was level, relevant to the Orthodox community, that in which case, in, in both, case, both companies thought they had been wronged by the other. <coughs> and they both came to the uh, negotiation uh, with lawyers and depositions and piles of evidence. And he said that they'd start in the morning to discuss and their temper was getting hotter and hotter. And it went on for several days. And he said, uh, in the middle of every afternoon though, someone would suddenly say, it's time to do the afternoon liturgy. So everybody would stop what they were doing, it's a mindfulness though, and stand up and face east because you have to all be facing east when you do your prayers, and do this 10-minute liturgy, which they can all do by heart, because you do it every three times a day. So they get up and they do the afternoon liturgy, and he said, after they sat down, the negotiations went much better. And I love thinking about it, I love that story, because I love to um, visually imagine that these people who are going at it this way got up and uh, faced the same way, as if to say, actually, just now I remember that we're on the same team, more or less. We are, at this moment, uh, adversaries, but we're not enemies. Someone said that, actually, in the debate last night, you know, that in the end, we're not adversaries, we're, you know, we're colleagues, and we're going to go on with this. This is, this is what's happening now, but we're colleagues, and we're on the same side. And if I want to think, I'd like to think that everybody, the whole world would stand up and face in the whole same direction <laughs> and say, actually, we're colleagues, we're all, uh, you know, we're all traveling on the spaceship through vast space. And as the spaceship is getting smaller and smaller, more crowded, and it's got less fuel on it and less resources, so we could get together and do something about it. But it requires the dropping of the idea of enemy and the idea and the ch and a, a, a wider frame around us to wait a minute, what's the bigger story? <coughs> and the what's the bigger story, I think, uh, is relevant to talking about meditation because for myself, and I wonder if it's true for you, that one of the side effects, or one of the great effects, not side effects, but main effects of meditation is when you sit down or stand or go for a walk, that's a meditation break, that the mind allows itself to make a beggar frame over its situation. Somebody will often say to me when I'm teaching in a community that uh, hasn't 
heard much about what the Buddha said or what any sage said. They'll say, my grandmother always said, it's not the end of the world. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's the same kind of a knowledge. You know, this, this event of this moment is not the end of the world. But at the moment, it feels like it's the end of the world and you have to fight with it. So it was, very, it was an interesting challenge for me to show up in each place and present what I had to present in, in the idiom of that people. There's a teaching of the Buddha that he gave uh, near the end of his teaching career where he had monks and nuns with him for some period of time and had trained them and had sent them out. It was sending them out, you know, when you get a charge to the troops, go out and do this. And the, the, the explanation of this sutta is that uh, he was about to send out all these monks and nuns to go and teach in different provinces and it begins, go forth, oh, and actually it says, go forth, oh, monks. I like to stick in the nuns, too, but the truth is, it says, go forth, oh, monks. Uh, go forth, oh, monks, and teach the Holy Dharma in the idiom of the people. And I think what it meant at the time is in Gujarati or Hindi or Urdu or whatever they speak it, where you're going. But I see it in a larger way over the centuries, if you look back, is go forth and teach it in the idiom of the people. So teach it in Chinese and Japanese and in Tibetan and in Korean. And that here are, in my mind's eye, it's, it would be a great little, um, um, a, a little cartoon to see all these little monks all spreading out all over Asia. And then you see, uh, it is said that, uh, who was it that brought, I forgot the name of the person, who brought, it says, so-and-so, so-and-so brought the, um, brought the Dharma to Japan, not to think of it. Uh, Dogen maybe brought the Dharma to Japan. They have to realize, so I have this little image, here's a little monk in a little boat, and he's rowing himself over from China to uh, Japan. And at some point, uh, these little cartoon monks in my mind got in airplanes and flew over to the uh, Western United States or the United States. They also flew to England and began to teach in, uh, in Europe um, in the idiom of the people. And I think in each case they not only learned the language, but the Dharma itself put on the clothing of the people and the customs of the people. and so. Tibetan Buddhism was very different from Chinese and Zen Buddhism, which is, and, Ch and Chinese Buddhism was very different from Zen. It emerged in a different era. It, uh, Zen is, is more uh, more influenced by the samurai movement. It's more um, um, heroic in its presentation, Japanese Zen. And there it comes to the United States, flying these little monks flying across and uh, in the United States in a significant way in the last 40 years. But starting actually er much earlier, Thomas Merton was very affected by the teachings of D.T. Suzuki that he read. And one of the reasons that he went to um, uh, the conference on uh, monasticism in Asia, at which he died so, uh, in an accident, uh, was that he was really interested in looking for a teacher, a Buddhist teacher, because he had, had, he had read a lot about Buddhism and taught himself 
a Zen meditation particularly, but was very interested in finding and interviewing uh, Buddhist teachers. For a period of time, um, maybe 10 years, my answer to the question, what book would you take with you on a desert island if you had one book that you could take? Think of it. What book would you take on a desert island if you had one book that you could take? Shakespeare, the works of Shakespeare, the Bible, whatever. I would so I was saying for some ten year period that I would bring a book called The Asian Journal of Thomas Merton. It was in a period of time that I was being very influenced by the teachings of Thomas Merton. I loved what he wrote because he wrote really out of his own experiences and difficulties. He was the first spiritual teacher that actually spoke to me in a personal way. I could understand what he was saying because he talked about his own life and his own struggles. And uh, the Asian Journal was a book that he wrote. It's the last book that he wrote. It was a journal that he kept on that trip. And uh, he died on that trip in an, uh, in a, in an accident. And uh, it, his journal wasn't finished. I mean, his plan was to bring it home and then to edit it and refine it and then publish it as a book. But because he died, his friends and his colleagues finished it, one of them in particular. And so where uh, uh, it says, uh, I studied with this particular Lama, and he taught me a lot about shamatha practice. So there'll be a footnote about what is shamatha <coughs> practice. So the book is very heavily footnoted. So it's a primer in, um, in um, Buddhist meditation through the eyes of uh, a Western spiritual seeker. And it, I, find it, I found it very moving. I, I, uh, I, I carried it around with me for a long time. Um, it, it surely is still in print. There's a, I had a favorite, I had a favorite uh, interchange <coughs> in it where he had, um, he had an interview with one particular lama that was very renowned for his wisdom. And part of the conversation is he said, uh, I told the lama how, uh, uh, you know, how much I admired how he saw things. And the lama told <coughs> me that I seemed to him to be a natural Buddha in some way. And um, he said to me, uh, I hope that we both practice very hard so that we uh, make it to final enlightenment in our next lifetime. He said, I said to him, I really hope we make it in this lifetime. <laughs> and it's a very sweet interchange. And someone took a photo of the two of them standing on some mountain peak in uh, Nepal. So you can find the, the book. I loved it. But why was I going to tell you that story? Wait, wait. There was something about that. 
that caused me to tell you that story. Otherwise, I wouldn't have <laughs> the, the one book you would have on the desert. That was the one book that I would have on a desert island. <laughs> but there was some reason that I was thinking about that. The idiom of the people. Oh, the idiom of the people, probably. The flying monks. The flying monks. But I think that, well, we'll leave it because I can't find the exact, the exact string that I was going to follow. But I think that it changes with the idiom of the people, that the people themselves change the Dharma in a certain way. If you see the Dharma evolving in the West, primarily in America where it's flourished so much, there's a, there's a uh, much bigger emphasis on um, social justice in the Dharma that we teach in the West. And I think it's because of, first of all, the, the, the 2,500 years that, that's passed since the Buddha taught, but we have an idea. We know what's going on on the other side of the world at, at this moment, and people didn't at that time. And um, the part that doesn't change, this is probably what I want, wanted to say, the part that doesn't change is the fundamental teaching of the cause of suffering being the mind that is uh, unable to accept the truth of its experience in this moment. That, uh, that we are confronted in our lives with difficulties, this or that or the other, which we mostly get through one way or another. But that I have the kind of a mind that says, oh, I didn't expect this, so what do I do now? Without tying itself in a knot of upset, that you can get through this life, not only totally gracefully, but actually celebrate it. Um, the great thing about the evening at the Smithsonian was uh, that, that it happened. First of all, I was very pleased about going. I, uh, I came down to Washington, and uh, one of my daughters accompanied me on this trip, so I had, I had a friend with me, I had a, you know, someone I knew. And we stayed at the home of a friend of hers in Arlington, and he assured us that he was taking us to this park in Arlington, at, at the Smithsonian. And he said, it takes 20 minutes to get from my house. Mm -hmm. And um, and uh, my instructions said, come at 6 o'clock, because we have to do a sound check. I knew it's a big order to do a sound check. And it starts at 7. At 7, I'll introduce you, and at 7.05, you'll start talking. So we come to the, this person's house in the afternoon. And he says, no problem, we'll leave at 5.30, we'll make it in plenty of time. So, uh, and two of his friends, you can see where this is going. <laughs> two, and I'm, I'm pretty excited, you know, it's Smithsonian. Uh, uh, so, uh, two of his, two women arrive, two friends of this person, they're also going with us. Five of us get in the car at 5.30, I call the Smithsonian person, my, in charge of it, and I said, we're on our way, it's 5.30, they're fine, we'll be right here, okay. At 6, we had gone half a mile, because we went around the corner and we got on this road that goes into the district from Arlington, and it was completely gridlock traffic, couldn't go back, couldn't turn around, couldn't move forward, couldn't move back. It's sleeting, and it's snowing, and it's icing, we can't turn around. And everyone in the room, everyone in the car is giving instructions. It was pretty fun. <laughs> Everybody was a self-appointed uh, expert on how to get there. You go back, forward, no, this way, that way. And I'm sitting, here's the driver, I'm sitting next to him. 
And Emmy wasn't giving any instructions. There were two women in the back giving instructions. You know, this is happening. And there were other people ahead of us. The freeway went both ways, but there was a big, in the middle of the road, you know, sometimes they have a divider. This is a big divider. Like, a, probably, probably it's a, a grass-wide divider. And we said, just ride over the divider. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, no, no, don't turn over the divider. And I'm thinking to myself, this is right out of my hands. Really. <laughs> and I sit there and I'm sitting. And I'm, actually, I was doing a little meta for myself, and I feel protected and safe. Um, <laughs> so, and uh, from time to time, Emmy would say from the back, Mom, you okay? I said, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine. You know, so I'm thinking about getting to, I really wanted to be there on time. You know? So at the very next, the half hour later, we come down to a place where you could make a U-turn, not riding over the grass the snow at this point, but maybe you turn. We go back past this person's house, it's now 6.15, it's uh, three quarters of an hour since we left and we haven't gone any place, we're back home. And we go to the metro station, oh. park the car, we run in the metro station, somebody says, I've got cards, go through, zip, 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 you know, you have to hand the card back for them. You have to know I'm wearing high heel boots because I'm trying to look glamorous. And then and, uh, up an escalator, zip, 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 we all get on a train, and it's a 20-minute ride into Washington. Then you have to change trains. So run down, go down an escalator, run to another escalator, up the escalator, and we emerge another train. We get on the other train, goes at one stop, we get out, and we emerge into the Smithsonian uh, Mall with all the museums around, and she had said, my contact had said, come in the little green round house. You'll see it when you come, you know, it's in, you can't miss it. It's next to the such and such and the such and such. So you come in, I see there's a little green rotunda-like entranceway. And it's probably from here to the, the whole, the, the, the back, the book, uh, back of the book was 100 yards, maybe. It's ice. So we're all holding each other up, uh, five people holding each other up, uh, slipping and sliding and coming over to the place. And as we're going over, the clock in the, in, uh, in the quadrangle is bonging 7 o'clock. Oh, yeah. oh I felt like Cinderella, like in My pumpkin was going to turn into, or I was going to turn into a pumpkin at 7 o'clock. So, and I have those instructions with me that says, I'll, I'll introduce you at 7 and you'll start talking. We zoom in, we get in there, then you have to go down a few flights of stairs, go down there. Here's the person, and she said, I knew you'd get here. I knew you'd get here. She said, I said, where is, where is the ladies' room? I run in, I come back. She said, okay, here we are, and we're on stage. I take off my coat, I sit down, she introduces me, and 707, I'm starting to talk. So after that whole thing. So I talked, I, I, I talked among other things, about what you do, you know, that's a, during a period of time, you're, then I'm saying to myself all the time, I don't know if I'll get there on time, I either will or I won't. <laughs> if I'm there on time, it'll be great. If I'm not there on time, I couldn't do anything about it. And one thing I don't want to do is get myself all whipped up about it, because I really <laughs> want to talk about life is one long, you can't get there from here. And it was really a perfect setup to talk about that. It's, you know, you expect one thing and something else happens. And that the practice of meditation or the practice of mindfulness 
is how do you put your head back into a wise way, which is not to get upset about things that you know you can't do anything about. You know, and it was so cute because as we're going along, everybody's just turning it in and like, "Mom, you all right? I'm fine." <laughs> and I really was, you know. I th I actually thought it was one of the more heroic things. It, it was a I knew it was a good story, but the other, thing I, the other thing that I thought about is, you, you know, here I am, and you know, one of my close friends has just died, and she's way younger than I am, and I think to myself. You know, this is again putting a bigger frame on it. It's a fantastic thing to be 71 years old and running across an icy program, <laughs> plaza, and high heel boots. And, you know, that's a great. That's a that's a great thing to celebrate. And to say, oh, the me, I had to drag myself. Frightening. You know, I, I actually thought it was a great adventure. So, and, and I really think that the that 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 part of uh, that part of that process I learned this from Tamara is you make it into an adventure, you make it into something that you can celebrate. You, you get a choice. Do you want to do this as an adventure or do you want to grouse about it? And and truth to tell, I think that we don't that all people are not created equal. I think actually some people come more tightly wired than other people. And other people, I, I, you know, I could have told you about my children. We, if I would have known the vocabulary, because I was way too young and not sophisticated. But, I thought, but even now, I, just, I could have told you then that some of them came out loaded for bear, and the others came out a little bit okay. You know, who has had more than one child that knows they come out different? <laughs> Every one of them from day one. <coughs> just from the way they are, they startle more, they fight back more. Uh, but to be able to be aware of one's own mind and what would be the course now of how to choose happiness. I think my friend Tamara chose happiness until the end. One of the things that I also thought, and I'm interested in uh, your view about that, is that the book is about effort and mindfulness and concentration. And uh, <coughs> I talked about them all being integral to each other and that there's a certain, you have to, you have to uh, make the effort. You can watch your mind thinking, well, what was the matter with Peter? He should have thought, you know, about when he said it would take 20 minutes, he should have thought about maybe since it's snowing outside, maybe it's not gonna take 20 minutes, maybe he could have left a little earlier. I could start to think that, but that would get me nowhere. You know, you have to say, don't think that. Think this. Either I'll get there, or I won't think that. I won't get there. And besides, it's fantastic that he's keeping us as house guests for two days. Do you have any idea how much our hotel room is in Washington? <laughs> it's amazing. So you, you think this, or you could think that. You know, to watch the mind, and the and the wise effort being that effort to take the mind from here and put it there. I, I love thinking about that instruction to see. Where is it? the direction of your mind is that it's going? Is that a good place to be? And the idea that you could put it somewhere else—it sounds very banal, like look for the silver lining. But it is, but you know, but really, look for the silver lining. And every the same people who say my grandmother said, "It's not the end of the world." My grandmother said, 
you know, as long as you have your health, there's always tomorrow. You know, I, I remember thinking about my mother-in-law 50 some years ago when I met her, saying things like, uh, I'd, say, I'd say, mother, uh, 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 I'm looking forward to seeing you on Sunday. She'd say, well, if you're gonna be well, yeah. I'll see you on Sunday. See, what kind of business is that? <laughs> this must be what old people say. Such a, such a uh, dreary view of life. We should live and be well. But honestly, we should live and be well. You never know. You know? And that to the degree that I actually know that, I, I, I think it's true about myself that I wouldn't leave. Um, I hope this is true. That I wouldn't leave. Uh, if I have uh, tense words with anyone in my family, that I wouldn't leave in that mode. That I don't, ha I don't have to phone back and apologize because I fix it before we leave or before we discontinue with each other. That I end my phone calls by saying I love you. Because if you wouldn't be well, you don't know if you get another shot at it. And it's just, you know, I like it instead of goodbye. I started doing that. My friends are doing that. It's a nice thing. I mean, I don't do it with the refrigerator repair. <laughs> 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 no, no, no. <laughs> um, but I, so I taught them all through, you know what I thought all through this trip because I was teaching mostly every day and mostly these same stories from this book. I got to know, not only could I do the stories by heart, but I got to, I learned from it. And I thought, you know, I didn't actually explain everything about this. I could have done it better. I didn't feel that in a bad way, like, oh, I, should, I wrote it too soon. I just think that going over it and going over it and going over it, you get it better. I, I learn it better each time. Like I said, I said to begin with, that I think they're all the same, that you can't have mindfulness unless you make an effort to have mindfulness. You can't have mindfulness unless you make, <coughs> develop some concentration because mindfulness depends on concentration. And I believe that's true, so I critique them separately. And that none is more important than the other, but for a while I said, you know, I think the most important of them is effort. The most important is intention. So if you set an intention, you say, this is the way I'd like to conduct my day now. That that it's a tripwire and it catches the mind as it's about to go in the wrong direction or carry on in some unwholesome direction. So for a while I was saying, well, I think it really depends on effort. But yesterday I thought, so, I thought no, probably because I'm going to look at the talk tonight on mindfulness and I started to write the talk about mindfulness. And I realized that really it depends on seeing clearly what's really true. And really keeping the the fundamental truth of the situation in view. So by tonight, I will be thinking that mindfulness is the most important. <laughs> um, and then, what? What happens if you know that the clarity of knowing what is true? You know, what if it's diluted or you know? So how do you? Know that that is true. How do you know it's true? Well, how do you know it's true? I think mostly I know it's true if uh, if I feel in a uh, if I feel in somehow 
in a warm connection if I, if I don't feel if I feel either benevolently some flavor of benevolence if I feel okay uh, this is really painful for me but I could take care of myself you'll be alright sweetheart may you be better than <coughs> if my ability to be compassionate or friendly or appreciative is alive I, I, I'm using that as my uh, as my gauge these days I think about it during the day. I think if I had one question to ask myself, is it in this moment, do I care? Do I care? Do I have that capacity to care? I'm so, one of the, one of the images that I don't have much here, I should, I could have them in San Rafael, I suppose, or in any town, but I stay with friends in Manhattan when I'm there. And just off Broadway, and so I spend a lot of time walking up and down Broadway, going on errands or going someplace. And I become so aware of the fact that uh, I can walk blocks on Broadway thinking about something, going over something like, oh, this thing, that, this email that I got this morning from so-and-so about her being discontent about this and that. How should I answer that? Because I don't want to be offensive, but on the other hand, I want to say the solution is so clear, blah, blah, blah. Whatever, I can walk blocks on Broadway and miss the entire Broadway. Mm -hmm. Not see that there are hundreds of people there doing having lives, you know. If I will, it's like my eyes are open, so I don't get run over. But they're not really open, you know. I have all these people, the only thing that probably my eyes, the only function my open eyes are doing is they're letting me know whether the light is red or green and whether the cars are coming. Because the whole rest of my attention is tied up in some problem that isn't happening there or then and that I can deal with later. And which isn't giving me any which isn't giving me any pleasure either. This is some sort of in, in, internal imbroglio. Whereas if I look around and you look on Broadway, there's millions of stores, millions of people, millions of in every age, every color of person, every age of person, every situation of person from tiny people getting carried by other people to old people getting pushed around by other people. Uh, and, and, every, and, and, and depending on the lens that I look through, you can look at so many instances of, um, of kindness. Little, you know, so people pushing baby buggies or carrying babies and they're taking care of them. And there's people with the old people taking care of them. You think, look at New York, it's wonderful. Every corner has two ramps, so you can go this way, you can go this way. It's really very carefully set up for people with uh, movement limitations. And everybody taking care of everybody, and everybody just doing their thing. There's so much going on. I think about the, the world is so, you know, remember that Robert Louis Stevenson? The world is so full of a number of things, okay. I think. We all should be happy. We all should be happy. We all grew up with the same poetry. But, but you know, just to look around and say, oh, we are, what's going on? Look at this life happening. And me a part of it. You know, that whatever is my stuff, you know, but here I am again, with or without harm. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.